I'd like to say a few words about <clears throat> everyday mind and the momentum of practice. Since most of you will be leaving in a short while, you'll be going back to your homes, jobs, families, etc. Um, a few hints at how this practice can be taken with you, so to speak, uh, may be helpful. There's a tradition here at this center of, at this point in the retreat, of giving what are called integration talks. Or as you've been practicing a certain way, and now you're going, you're leaving the retreat and you're going out there. And we have to find a way of integrating what you've been doing here with where we're going to. And although it's true that this is a a rather specialized environment, a rather specialized set of conditions, uh, all designed to help us become concentrated and calm and understand ourselves, in another sense, it's no different than where we've come from and where we're going back to. And if you heard the orienting remarks in the opening evening, in a sense, there's no such thing as integration. There's no need to integrate anything into anything else because there's only wherever we are. Although there are a few practical modifications, for example, if you were to stay here for a long time and then go back out there because you've perhaps been moving slowly or been quiet for a long time, uh, there would be some sense in when you get home to gradually pick up your job and social life, much as if when you end a fast, be helpful, if it's a a fast to any extent, to not immediately start eating normally, but perhaps take two or three days. And so things of that sort, of course, are useful and apply. But depending on how you practice here, you may or may not uh, find the word integration necessary. And I think what Vimlo, Vimlo and I have been trying to emphasize is this uh, unity of practice. So that in a sense, there's uh, no need for an integration talk. It's the same talk, only slightly different because of where you're going to. It's applying the same principle, the very same principle. Now, we have some people here who've probably heard integration talks many times, and some of you have never heard them, and I'm balancing this right now, or as I um, have to say some things that the people who've never heard about have to hear, and then some of you have heard them a lot. But what I'm going to attempt to do is to parallel our situation here with the situation outside and try to minimize that split, if I can. If you remember the, the first uh, Friday evening when we began, what was emphasized is bringing attention to everything that you did and to maintain that same attitude and to value uh, the sitting and all the other miscellaneous activities equally. Okay, now a couple of days have gone by. Has that been true for you? I mean, 
probably there's been a, a, at least some time where it has not been true. Perhaps uh, much of the time it's not been true. That is, we've really valued the sitting more. We value the walking more and tended to be uh, more casual about everything else. I don't know if it's true, but there's a fair chance that it might be true. I'd like to tell you a little uh, story uh, from uh, an Indian story. I don't know if it's true. Of a, uh, a king who was a great yogi. Was he was able to both be a king of an empire or a country and a great yogi, a spiritual adept. And someone wanted to find out how this was possible. And they also wanted to uh, become a, uh, develop spiritually. And they went to this king yogi and asked him how he did it since he had so many responsibilities and yet had gone very deep spiritually. And so he gave this person an assignment of carrying a pot of hot oil on his head or her head. I don't know the story. Uh, through the palace. The challenge was to go entirely through the palace without spilling a drop. And so this person went through the palace. Um, every room, every chamber of the palace came back and proudly announced that they had not spilled a drop and felt that, okay, so I guess I'm learning how to do it. And then the king said, well, can you tell me what's been going on in all those rooms in the chambers? The gossip, political intrigue, you know, who's doing what with whom and what, what's happening? What's going on here? And he said, how would I know? I was so preoccupied with carrying this pot on my head. I haven't the slightest idea of what anyone was doing, what was really happening in all these situations. So then the king said, okay, now go back again through the palace. And this time again, don't spill a drop. But also, when you come back, tell me where the action is. I mean, what's happening in this palace? And it's a little bit like that. In other words, there are versions of practice which can uh, be rarefied, almost like being a hothouse type practice, and which seem very cut off from what we have to do in the remainder of our life. And since all of us, or most of us, I don't know you all, are lay people who cannot come to retreats that often, much of our life, a huge proportion, 90% or more, is going to be spent in everyday mind. Just the ordinary mind of taking out the garbage, tending to shopping, washing, dressing, cleaning the house, studying, uh, talking to your children, all the things that we do, sports, eating, everyday mind. And if our practice doesn't take into account that, or if it doesn't take into account the fact that this is where we spend the bulk of our time, and if we only live to come to retreats like at Barry or other places, and then when we leave, we live off the memories of having been here and wear them like campaign ribbons. And some of you have been doing that. One, per, Well, no names at all, but some of you have been carrying retreats for a long time, like... I don't know, three years ago, the retreat I did, it was all bliss, and, uh, but it isn't now. And, and then when, you're, when we go back to where we live, uh, we spend a lot of time uh, trying to scheme and calculate to raise money and to arrange our schedule so we can come back for the next retreat. That is assuming that you enjoyed this or found it of some value. <laughs> Not enjoyed, but found it of some value. 
In the meantime, that's a huge proportion of our life. And so, what I would like to suggest is that that's our challenge. It's both keeping that pot on our head, but also uh, living fully, uh, living a full life in an undivided way, and for that life to, to have spiritual significance. So there isn't this separation. That, takes, that itself is a practice because the natural tendency will be to create the split because of the way images uh, in abundance are around us. The Buddha is usually, uh, aside from being a man, is usually in a seated posture in art books and museums. And we have a a notion of meditation as uh, a fixed entity in a cave or in a retreat place of this sort. And yet our life is not spent in that form. A lot of it is not spent in that form. Just taking the retreat here, for those of you who have been here for a few days and those who are staying for the rest of the week, if you really practice being attentive in everything that you do, as was suggested, getting dressed, really being mindful as we dress, going to sleep mindfully. If your job is chopping the vegetables, chopping the vegetables mindfully. If we really do that, all those small activities that constitute our day, then when we leave here, in quotes, to go there, in quotes, there isn't really that much of a gap. At least, at least I've not found it to be so. I've practiced this way for many years. There are differences, of course. But I've not found the gap to be such that it, it even requires much conversation. Whereas if you don't practice that way, If what is seen as the practice is basically sitting and then secondarily the walking or is a formalized practice, what happens is when you leave here, of course, there's a tremendous gap between here and there. We make there and we make here. And so we have here and there. So for those of you who are remaining, I'd really like to encourage you to to practice this way, just naturally and attentively. Take slowness. Slowness can be tremendously valuable. In this particular uh, lineage, slowness is valued a lot. Probably most or all the teachers who teach Vipassana value slowing down when you come here. Doing very slow walking, and sometimes what's suggested is the slow walking all the time throughout the entire retreat, not just uh, formal periods of walking. Eating very slowly. and in general, slowing everything down. And for those of you who have done that, you know that it can be invaluable. A lot can be learned, a certain uh, kind of precision and depth. And because our lives are so speedy, just that alone, just the slowing down, independent of any noticing that's going on, it can be very helpful. And that's one mode of practice. But if we reify it or deify it and think that slow is holy, or slow is spiritual, I think we're making a big mistake because slow is just slow. And fast is not spirit is not, not spiritual, it's just fast. Now, uh, I've done a fair amount of practicing in the slow way and some years ago when I did a retreat here myself, I did a three-month retreat basically by myself here, a personal retreat. And my practice was doing everything at ordinary speed. Or it's just eating the way I would when I'm in Cambridge, just dressing the way I would when I'm in Cambridge, just taking walks the, the way I would when I, when I live in Cambridge. 
But because this is also a very protected environment with a lot of encouragement to stay awake all over the place, I was able to practice being ordinary, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's kind of weird to, to think that we have to practice being ordinary or practice being natural since I don't know what else there is. But I took that on as a practice and it was not easy at the beginning. But there is a certain uh, value in that as well. It's not to say that this is superior to the slow walking. It's different. They both teach different things. Uh, And each one of you has to figure out your own practice rhythm and perhaps those of you who are staying on, we can talk about that. What would be most helpful for you at this point? For many people, a lot of slow walking and slowing everything down might be very, very helpful. But what I learned from that is that when I came back from here, and of course I did a lot of sitting, and did everything else at a normal pace and tried to stay alert in it. When I came back from here to there, uh, there was really, I can't say there was a gap. And I found the quality of my daily life improved tremendously. I mean, I was still taking out the garbage. It's not that there's anything so wonderful about that. Or making my bed, or sweeping, or taking clothes to the cleaners, or whatever, but I was more alive in the doing of it. See, it's not the object. It's not there's anything uh, especially magical about taking out the garbage. It's the quality of mind that we bring to it. Some years ago, uh, someone who was doing training like this and who worked in a restaurant, chopping broccoli one time, heard these instructions over and over again until probably it was coming out of her ears, as some of you may feel, because I see some familiar faces. And one time in working in the restaurant, she really did it. She was chopping the broccoli and she was totally attentive to doing it and came back to this group that we had and was ecstatic about how incredible it was, how alive she felt and how wonderful it was just chopping the broccoli. Okay, then some, some people started asking questions, the gist of which was uh, almost, well, where do we get this broccoli, you know? Uh, it's not in the broccoli. It's in us. It's that when we live in an undivided way, we're more alive. Yeah. I heard in another story, was warning people against uh, uh, drinking and uh, uh, cigarettes. And, uh, so they asked him, now where do we get the cigarettes? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's a, a quality of mind that we're trying to, to develop and encourage one another to do. Now this notion of momentum... Let's see how much time I have. Uh, this notion of momentum, there is linking everyday mind and momentum. Can you imagine the amount of uh, time and energy we've all put in, in cultivating many of the qualities that we already have, some of which are, unfortunately for all of us, destructive or they don't work? I mean, w- qualities of mind ways of approaching people and things and actions and nature that are uh, not beneficial. And of course, that's largely perhaps that brings us to a path like this or any other spiritual path is that there's uh, uh, an interest in learning how to live 
because there's something perhaps uh, lacking in the way in which we do live. But there's great power in the way we already live. In other words, these conditions are rolling. There's tremendous force behind it. You don't need past lifetime uh, assumptions. There's enough in this lifetime where these habit patterns and particularly one habit, which is the habit of being inattentive, except when something special is going on, special person or a special event, that has been so cultivated and reinforced that it's very, very strong. And in a sense, uh, spiritual practice is an attempt to intensify the energies of awareness and learning and sensitivity so that a momentum can uh, pick up, can develop, which can begin to turn our lives around. Now, when I use the word momentum, I don't mean we have to become like Mack trucks or steamrollers. It's a very more, it's a more of a subtle thing. Uh, sometimes when I use this term, some people who are, let's say, uh, on the quiet side, a bit introverted or a little bit shy, or perhaps who have uh, jobs that are mental, feel that this doesn't include them. I don't mean that you go running through the street, uh, knocking everything over or... The momentum I'm talking about is very subtle and it's each person expresses it in their own way, in their own nature, through their own nature. It's an inner momentum. The, the uh, intensity of awareness can really develop and become catch fire. And then we have uh, a quality of mind that can really, um, in a sense, burn through a lot of the difficulties that we have. And so it's that kind of momentum. Now, if we have a practice that is limited to just sitting and just sitting on special occasions, like when we come to Barry or some other retreat center, what I feel is the momentum gets started and then it just falls away again. Because then we go home and not a whole lot goes on. There isn't this creative relationship with our life. Bring that same uh, enthusiasm to everything that we do, and then we come back to the next retreat, and then we try to rekindle it. And it's a little bit like rubbing sticks together, and just as it's about to catch fire, we stop. And then, if you start in again, it's not as if the sticks are as hot as they were at the peak, as just as it was about to catch fire. It's like you almost have to start over again, perhaps not quite. And so, what I would like to suggest to us as lay people who are not living a monastic existence but are very much in the world that unless this is a strong statement but I really mean it that unless we learn how to direct these energies of sensitivity and awareness or as all the things you've been hearing about the practice into daily life into all the ordinary things that constitute our life I would say it's pretty it's hopeless that you're not going to be able to develop a quality of attention just by coming here, just by going on some magical retreat. And I'm sorry, I know that that's not a great message to hear. Then again, it's not so good for business, I suppose. <laughs> then again, it's a very wonderful message if you can hear it from the, up the positive side of it. Because what is being suggested is a way of life that has some energy in it. Or is living fully, living wholeheartedly, in your own way. You can be quiet or you can be more extroverted. That's not the point. You can have a, uh, work that's more, that's more intellectual or work that's manual. That's not the point either. It's starting to understand that life is homogeneous. 
And wherever you are is a perfect place to practice. No place is any better than any other place or any worse. It more has to do with the attitude that we bring to that place. And when we come up to wonderful situations like the ones that exist here at IMS, then wholeheartedly to sit and to walk, maintain silence, really derive all the benefits that's possible in an intentionally devised community like this. And when we leave IMS, drop it. Let it go and bring that same energy, direct it into our situation, whatever that situation is, wherever we find ourselves. So from this point of view, I think that attitude is more important than any technique or any bunch of techniques. And the question is how to arouse it. (coughs) It's not easy, I know, because I've been working on myself and also trying to share this perspective with others. And we have this tendency, all of us, to just forget, to fall asleep. And sometimes it's hardest for those people who develop strong sitting practices. We just want to get back to the cushion. That's where we feel happiest. Finally, get away from all those people. They have all these different opinions and ideas and they they just don't seem to be me. (laughs) They seem to have this insistence on asserting their own character and their own tastes and their own opinions. And at least on this cushion, I can just be reign supreme. No conflicts, and I don't have to process anything and hear about anyone's biography or their parents or any of that stuff. Just the cushion. Thank God you can be quiet here. You don't have to talk. But that ends, you know, and then we leave, and then it starts again. I think some of the ways in which uh, the incentive can be arrived at is through understanding. I mean, if we, if we really start to examine our life, and if we begin to understand that it's really very helpful to pay attention in action, in our relationships, in work, in the way we eat, in the way we care for our bodies, in the way we do everything, that it isn't just some kind of a, a religious slogan or an ideology. It's just common sense. It's intelligent to pay attention to how you live Because if we pay attention to how we live, we may learn how to live. We may learn that art of living, or at least the degree to which we have it developed already, for that to become refined. And that simply means, you know, if we take the breath as a paradigm, we've been learning, you know, to attend to the breath, and let's say we space out and get lost in something, then to remember to turn again to to the breath, or to whatever else is predominant in the moment, We have to remember to do that and it takes a certain amount of effort to turn to the breath. And then not only do we have to turn to the breath, we then stay there. And not only stay there, but begin to discern all the subtleties of the behavior of the sensations, let's say, at the breath, that the breath is manifesting. Now, that's not any different than what happens to us when we go home. I'd like to use one example Uh, We don't have time to go through the full range of activities, but if you can get a sense of at least one way in which myself and others have been working and seen at least a little bit of of light, and that's in the area of relationship. Does that interest you? (laughs) Would you rather I talk about something else like the breath, walking, samadhi? Oh, okay, I'll talk about relationship. 
very often there's a split. The quality that, uh, or for meditators, people who really are drawn to this life between how they are on the cushion and how they are in a relationship. And the relationship is almost non-existent. Take a typical situation. Supposing you come to Buddhist retreats a lot and you read Buddhist books and you get the notion, you get this idea, which is perhaps if you've been doing that, it's probably coming out of your ears, the importance of non-attachment or that let's say suffering and attachment uh, might even be synonyms. Close relationship between attachment, clinging, holding on, and the fact that we find ourselves uh, in pain and sorrow and suffering. And so fine, we're in a relationship and we hear about the importance of letting go, of being independent, of being compassionate. We have all kinds of spiritual ideals. And then we want to live those ideals. And then we're in a concrete, actual relationship. And it's not unusual, if you're honest, many of us have found and find that before too long, if it's a relationship that has any intensity, there's tremendous attachment, tremendous possessiveness. Let's just take that. And we could just stop with, with that. And on one hand, we have an ideal of, let's say, of letting go, of being free, of not being attached because we know it's going to hurt. And on the other hand, we see how we actually are, or do we? And this is what I meant. What I found helpful, and some of us have found helpful, is learning how to actually and literally unfold this practice in our circumstance that we find ourselves. Let's say, in this case, it's a relationship with another person. And if you hear this, please extend it to everything else that you're doing. It's not meant to be limited to that. Step number one is the actuality of the relationship. Just how is it? How is it actually? And that isn't a concept or a poetic insight. It's from moment to moment, just what actually is happening as two people are together, as they live together and do things together. You start with exactly where, where you are. Just as if you recall, we've been trying to reinforce that here. Many of the questions have to do with future times of gaining peace and uh, all kinds of wonderful states of non-stress, etc. And usually instructions are, come back to the stress that's here. This is, where, this is the fact, what's going on. So that if we were to transfer these instructions to a relationship, step number one might be noticing that although you've read all these books and actually intellectually favor the idea of non-attachment, there you are, stuck as stuck can be incredibly attached, incredibly possessive. Your partner just looks the wrong way and you're hurt for a week. You won't talk to them. You know, what's wrong? Oh, nothing. You know, the silent treatment or the aggressive treatment. Some treatment. And someone has to be right and somebody has to be wrong and someone's good and somebody's bad. Heroes and villains and all of that. Step number one in the practice, not really different than the breath, is can we turn our energy right there to that moment and experience what attachment feels like. Never mind letting go for the moment. Never mind uh, non-attachment. We don't know what attachment is. What does it feel like to really be stuck? Possessiveness. What does it feel like to be grabbing at someone, trying to regulate them, trying to make them behave in such a way so that you get gratified all the time 
at least when you want it. If you don't want to be gratified, then fine. Then you just assume they're not even there. Okay. Can we learn how to attend to that? Uh, step number one, and it might have to be done silently. I mean, you, it takes a lot of courage to share this. But step number one might be to come to an accurate understanding through the same old, little old mindfulness that we're using here. It's really not different. It's the same everyday mind. Only now the attention, and you can use the breath sometimes to help steady this attention, is now examining the state of feeling like a fly stuck on fly paper. You know, there you are, attached. <laughs> and instead of trying to, let's say, rip your arm off, your wing, you know, off the fly paper, you start to examine, oh, I see, this right... This goes this way and it can't go any further. And there's that arm and, oh, this is what it feels like to be stuck on flypaper. <laughs> and I want to move to the left, but I can't. And I can't, in fact, I can't do anything. And you start to experience that, not as an exercise in torture or anything of that sort. But the starting point is for us to, to understand what attachment really is like, and by extension, any other thing. And if we can understand uh, the fact that this state is not beneficial, it's not a happy state for us, the one who's attached. It's not a happy state at all. And if through uh, continuous or at least some continuity in the mindfulness, we can begin to see just what that is for us, actually, then that understanding has power. Then it's not trying to be... uh, independent or non, non-attached because it sounds good because the Buddha said it or some, some teacher said it or a Dharma book said it. But, you know, understanding is a force in the universe. It's very powerful. Real understanding is very powerful if it's real understanding. And each one of us has to develop that experientially. And so when you start to understand what attachment is, you dig it out of the marrow of your own bones. You, you really feel that. And this is what, how I am living then step number two, you may start to share it with your partner. And that may be difficult. Where you, uh, particularly men have a hard time sharing certain kinds of weaknesses. And so that takes great courage and austerity. Austerity used now in a very beautiful sense. Meaning totally honest. Learning how to do that. And then perhaps if we're in a relationship and hopefully if the partner also is interested in freedom and coming to some kind of freedom, uh, there can be some kind of a uh, creative exchange where we talk to each other about the actuality of our lives, which we learn through awareness, through a commitment to staying present, through staying sensitive, and through sharing what we learn. And it keeps changing. It's a very fresh way to live. So that, can you see that this is not less valuable than following your breath? I'd also like to say it's not more valuable. Now that may, the reason I'm saying that is because if you understand what this perspective is suggesting, it means that wherever, whatever we encounter is our life. And so that if you're sitting following your breath, that is your life. And so if you value life, then when you're following your breath here at IMS, there's a wholeheartedness to it. And if you're in a relationship, and when you're in, in a relationship, then it could, it could become only natural for, that, for the same quality of interest and attention to be expressed there, simply because that's how our life is being expressed at that moment. 
and then the next moment it's something else, and it keep, the content keeps changing, but now the focus is on life itself. Okay, to help this, one thing that can be very useful is to establish a daily sitting practice. Here it's easy because there's a schedule and all of us come here and in doing that we encourage one another and keep one another here. But when, when you get home, it often isn't as easy. And so what's very important is, if you can, to establish a daily sitting practice. And often the question is, for how long? And I, I've never been able to figure that out. I don't know. Because for one person, a half an hour is e- an eternity. And another person is just getting warmed up at a half an hour. And so probably what makes the most sense is to work slightly beyond what you think is your capacity so that there's some challenge to it. But not so much so that it's uh, overwhelming. And then allow that to grow. And I think it's reasonable. All of you have been sitting here. You've been here for a weekend. I think it's reasonable for all of us here to assume that over time you can grow into being able to sit in silence for an hour a day. Perhaps a half an hour twice or an hour in one chunk and then eventually perhaps a couple of hours a day. People do it who have busy lives. Now, that probably won't happen until you come to, again, and here's the power of understanding. It's a real force in our lives. You come to understand the real value of meditation. Not because of anything that anyone told you, but you can see it. So it, it, it changes from being something that you try to slip into spare time. Let's see, I'll s- between the shower and uh, getting the kids off to school and... Um, Putting, up, putting the eggs up, I think I can fit in 10 minutes. Or it's slipping into the other way around when you start to see the, if you see the value of it, because each, each person has to do it for themselves. Then you start to rearrange your life so that you, you are sure that you, so that you make time for meditation. And that often coincides with uh, seeing areas of our life that are not fulfilling, which we, but yet we live them out anyway. Things we've been doing for centuries, I don't know, a long time, and they're not fulfilling, they're not interesting, and we even resent them, and yet we keep doing them over and over and over again. And if the incentive to find time for meditation grows, uh, it becomes harder and harder to do things that are meaningless or not very fulfilling. And so that life, one's life, I don't like the word lifestyle, but let's say one's life, the way we carry out our life starts to change, our values change. And we protect awareness. Now, I don't know how you come to that, how you come to really for yourself understand the value of meditation. I don't know any way other than continuing to do it, and perhaps that means sitting through uh, periods that don't seem to be all that creative or inspiring, as some of you have been all too willing to share that conclusion here. And yet, staying with it anyway, somehow uh, some deep faith or intimation that uh, there is something real about this. It isn't just another ideology or some propaganda. And the day comes where you start to, for yourself, see that you don't even have to use words like meditation or vipassana, but self-awareness, that for a human being to know themselves is not, it's not a luxury item. It's actually extraordinarily important. It's of the highest, the highest priority. Because the degree to which we don't know ourselves, we're spreading that 
ignorance through the actions that we carry out all day long, we're, we're bringing that into, that's our life. So I hope when you leave here, uh, with that kind of understanding, there will be the beginnings, each person at their own pace, attempting to, to have a sitting practice. It's very helpful if you can find a group of people to sit with, or even just one other person, even just once a week. If you can arrange, if you find somebody uh, who's willing to sit with you for an hour and just the two of you sit and perhaps just talk over what it, what it was like to sit for a few minutes. To come to retreats periodically is very helpful. Those of you who have been doing it, probably you, you know that. From time to time to just leave certain things behind and to just come to places like Barry, some of the Zen centers that exist, some of the Tibetan reach, uh, retreat places. And to use that form skillfully. But not to see that as superior to where to, to daily life. And that's what I meant by seeing everyday mind as a way of developing momentum. Momentum that's really necessary if our life is to be turned around for some real quality to come into it. Or if there already is a good deal of quality into your life for that to become more refined. It's infinite. See, I haven't heard. Yeah. Let me leave you with a a notion from uh, Jewish mysticism. Certain uh, the people call the Hasids. They had an idea that uh, each human being is entrusted with a uh, God entrusts each human being with a small portion of the universe. Whatever it is, it could just be a corner candy store, a grocery store, as often was the case. And that's your realm. And in its own way, it's just as important as what the president or full professor or whatever it is. Each person, it's just as important. So you've been entrusted with a, a small piece of that universe and your job is to treat it that way, is to really care for it. Give it great care and attention. Give it whatever it needs. And that, of course, includes the people in your life, nature and the environment we live in. And perhaps that's another way of looking at it. It's another way of saying the same thing. Of uh, dissolving this uh, difference between what seems to be uh, sacred and profane. So that we realize that all we actually have is, is this life. And if we feel that that's sacred, then obviously wherever we are is, uh, is equally valuable and equally a place to bring uh, insight meditation into it. Okay. Now drop all of that and do walking meditation. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.